theyeshiva.net. You're joining Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly radio show Saturday night from 10 to 11 p.m. at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can pick it up also at theyeshiva.net where you could listen and watch many of my classes. And tonight's topic is how to forgive if you can't forget. Should you forgive if you can't forget? It's very appropriate, especially tonight. Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach, which is all about second chances in life. So should we give people second chances? How do we give people second chances? Should you always forgive? When should you not forgive? How could you forgive? What if somebody has been pained in a very profound way? Should they still forgive? What if somebody doesn't apologize? What if somebody apologizes? But they, you feel that they are not being sincere. So what happens then? Do you still forgive them? What if they did something a long time ago and they haven't engaged in it for a while? Should you still forgive them? What are the rules with forgiveness? These are... uh, deep emotional questions that people have and people struggle with on a daily basis. Reminds me, you know, they tell the old anecdote. They tell the anecdote about uh, this preacher who was giving a Sunday sermon about forgiving enemies. So towards the end uh, of the service, of the sermon, he asks his congregation, he says, how many of you have forgiven their enemies? And about half of the people held up their hands. So he repeats his question again. This time about 80% hold up their hands. He repeats this question again. How many of you have forgiven their enemies the way they should? And finally everyone responded. Everybody picked up their hand except one short, short elderly lady. Mrs. Jones inquires the preacher, Are you not willing to forgive your enemies? She replies, I don't have any enemies. Mrs. Jones, the preacher says, that's so unusual. How old are you? She says, 103. Oh, Mrs. Jones, he says, what a blessing and a lesson to all of us you are. Would you please come down in front of the congregation and tell us how a person can live for 100 years? 
and three years and not have an enemy in the world. You are an inspiration. You are a source of enlightenment to all of us. Incredibly, 103 years old without an enemy. The lady comes down the aisle, she faces the congregation and she says, I, I outlived all of those idiots. So that's one uh, perspective, I guess, on forgiveness. I once read another story that was actually quite hilarious, and I also want to bring this up at the onset of the conversation. This is a story that was related by the legendary Nazi hunter, the Austrian, Deuce, the Austrian Jew, Simon Wiesenthal. And he related a story about a man who lived near him in one of the displaced persons camps, one of the DP camps after World War II. Wiesenthal was a survivor, and this man was a survivor, and this man borrowed $10 from Simon Wiesenthal and assured him that he had a package coming from a relative any day, and he would certainly pay him back the $10 next week. At week's end, Simon Wiesenthal says, no, he has an excuse why he's not paying. But it's coming, it's coming, he'll soon pay. The next week, he had even a better excuse. And so it went on for almost a year. Every week he had another excuse, another invention, why he cannot pay. Finally, one day, the man comes up with a $10 bill in his hand, and he tells Simon Wiesenthal, my visa has just come through. I'm leaving for Canada tomorrow. Here's the $10 I owe you. Simon Wiesenthal waves him away, and he says, no, keep it. For $10, it's not worth changing my opinion of you. Do you agree with Simon Wiesenthal? Do you think he's right? Do you think he might have been wrong? For $10, it's not worth changing my opinion of you. So these are the questions we raise today in our show, tonight in our show. And you're welcome to ask to share your feelings, your emotions, your ideas, your experiences about this or similar topics. You can now call in live with your questions and remarks and experiences and sentiments. 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444. Or you can email your questions to rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. That's rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. And we are going to go straight to the questions. So, can I just have the laptop with the questions? Let's see what came in. By email, you can email rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. What do you feel about forgiveness? Do you forgive people? Have people forgiven you? Are you good at forgiving? Do you think we can all forgive? Okay, so let's see. Here is a very interesting question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, how should I deal with someone who repeatedly touches children inappropriately despite warnings? How do I forgive? How do I not judge them? Okay. Well, I think then we should begin with this. Let's start with answering this question and really 
discussing when should a person not forgive? Are there times you should not forgive? And I think there are two times when you don't forgive. Number one, if forgiveness means allowing a criminal to continue their criminal activities, then forgiveness is a sin. I remember they said a story during the first Gulf War. You remember the first Gulf War by President Bush won, Bush the father. It was in 1991. And General Norman Schwarzkopf, right? That was his name, Norman Schwarzkopf. He was the commander-in-chief of the U.S. forces fighting in Iraq against Saddam Hussein at the time. And they asked Schwarzkopf, is it our job to forgive terrorists? We believe in forgiveness. Should we forgive terrorists? That was the question. And uh, Schwarzkopf's response, I will never forget. He said, that's God's job. It's God's job to forgive. It's God's job to forgive terrorists. Our job is to arrange the meeting. I remember a few days after 9-11, September 11th, 2001, I saw an ad in the New York Times by a group of Buddhists in New York. They were arranging an evening in Manhattan in order to forgive the perpetrators of 9-11. The ad spoke of the need to bring healing to the community by forgiving those who drove planes into the Twin Towers. This was obviously a very different approach than General Schwarzkopf's approach. But here is one of the key issues, and that is, if someone is hurting another person and doesn't ask forgiveness or express remorse, but rather continues to harm that person, we are morally forbidden to forgive this person, because by forgiving him, we embolden him. We encourage him to continue in his negative behavior. We become passive accomplices of the crimes. To forgive in such an instance is assisting the perpetrator rather than confronting him. So it's extremely important when somebody is engaged in acts that harm other people, now is not the time to discuss forgiveness or judgment. Now is the time to stop the crime. So when you tell me that somebody is repeatedly touching children inappropriately despite warnings, forget about judging the person, forget about forgiving the person. The person has to be stopped immediately. Because somebody who touches children inappropriately is a criminal of the highest order. Children who are molested are sometimes damaged for life. They're sometimes damaged for many, many years. And even if they find healing, and many people do find healing, and I believe that a soul is capable of healing, the levels and amounts of agony and pain that they have to suffer with is indescribable. So that's the focus. It's not about judging favorably. And not True, the Mishnah says, don't judge another person till you don't reach his space. And if I would have your addictions, and if I would have your instincts, and if I would have your background, and if I would have your life experience, and I would have, if I would have your challenges and your diseases, maybe I would have done exactly what you're doing, and maybe I would have been much worse. Okay, fine. But if you are hurting another person, I have to stop you by any means possible. So this person needs to be reported to the authorities. This person who is touching 
abusing children inappropriately must be reported immediately. That is the focus now. The focus is not forgiveness. The focus is stopping a crime that's happening right now. And this is a rule in life. If somebody is doing nasty things, if somebody is damaging, if somebody is hurting, if somebody is harming, and I just say, you know what? I forgive. Everything is wonderful. Then am I not helping them perpetrate these crimes? If you're dealing with a person who did something in the past and is now expressing remorse, that's a whole other story. But it doesn't seem that that's the story in your email. Let's go to another question. You can email all of your questions to rabbiyyradio at gmail.com or you can call 845-354-2444. The lines are open. You're joining Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson on the radio show Second Chances. Should I forgive? Lee, how do we refresh this page? I want to see the other emails. We're now going to get to other questions about the question, should I forgive if I don't forget? How do I forgive if I don't forget? Okay, so here is another question, and that is, somebody has really hurt a close friend of mine. How do I forgive them? This is a wonderful question. I think there is another issue that now has to be addressed about uh, forgiveness. Um, uh, how do we do this? You know, let me, let me, uh, let me tell you a story. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story. There is a book, it's a very well-known book, it's called The Sunflower. I don't know how many of you have read it. The Sunflower is a book that was uh, authored by the Austrian Nazi hunter whom I mentioned earlier, Simon Wiesenthal. It's actually mandatory reading in many schools because it brings up a very profound and stimulating discussion about the ethics of forgiveness. The author, Wiesenthal, was a Jew who was in Auschwitz, he was facing probable death at the hands of his cruel Nazi handlers, and he's brought before a fatally wounded SS soldier about to breathe his last breath. Fascinating. Wiesenthal was then working in a hospital. It was the middle of the Holocaust. And before this SS soldier was about to die, the Nazi requests forgiveness from Simon Wiesenthal for participating in atrocities against the Jewish people. What would you do in Simon Wiesenthal's position? It's in the middle of the war. A young SS soldier was mortally wounded. He's about to die. He's lying in the hospital. He asks the nurse to call in a Jew. They call in Simon Wiesenthal. And he turns to him and he asks forgiveness for his part in committing evil against the Jewish people. And he made a confession. This young SS soldier made a confession to Wiesenthal. He confessed and shared the following horrific story. He and his comrades poured kerosene and ignited a synagogue in the Ukrainian city of Dnepropetrovsk with 500 Jews packed inside the shul. He said, behind the windows of the second floor, I saw a man with a small child in his arms. His clothes were burning. By his side stood a woman. Doubtless, 
She was the mother of the child. With his free hand, the man covered the child's eyes. Then he jumped into the street. Seconds later, the mother followed. Then from the other windows fell burning bodies. This dying Nazi and his comrades tell Simon Wiesenthal, we shot all the people jumping from the burning synagogue. Now, viewing Simon Wiesenthal as the representative of the Jewish people, he seeks to absolve himself and ease his unrelenting conscience through confessing and expressing his regret to him right before he breathed his last breath and goes to meet his maker. He tells the story he grew up in a very Christian religious household that believed in God, but in the 1930s he joins the Hitler Jugend, he joins the Hitler Youth, he becomes a Nazi, becomes an SS soldier. And now he begs the Jew for a response. He wants confirmation that his remorse is accepted. He's awaiting the comforting words that might provide him a peaceful death. Simon Wiesenthal, himself a young Jew, still captive in the living hell created by this man and his comrades, holds his silence. He does not respond. Instead of forgiving the Nazi, he turns around and he leaves the room as the Nazi dies. That silence forever haunts him. It tugs on his conscience till his last day. He addresses the question later to 53 noted religious and world thinkers. And their responses make up a symposium that he transcribes in his book, The Sunflower. And it's interesting, if you read the book, every Christian respondent, every Christian he asked, and many representatives of other faiths, you know what they told him to do? They felt that he was wrong in not forgiving the Nazi murderer. And each of the Jewish people he asked believed he was right for not forgiving. What would you say? What's the, what's the proper approach? So I want to ex- share with you something. And I think it's very important when we discuss forgiveness. There's a Mishnah at the end of Tractate Yuma, and it says that for sins against God, Yom Kippur brings forgiveness. For sins against one's neighbor, Yom Kippur brings no forgiveness until one has actually asked his or her friend for forgiveness. Isn't that ironic? It's Yom Kippur. It's the awesome day of forgiveness. It's the day that has the power to absolve one and all of all of their sins. But it's only sins towards God. It's useless in the face of crimes committed against another person. Why? Shouldn't an offense against a lowly man, a mere creation, rank lower than an offense towards God, the Creator and the Master? And one of the explanations is very simple. And that is, God forgives any sin He can, but He cannot forgive those sins that He can't forgive. How can God forgive a sin which I committed against another human being? If I hurt Mr. Goldberg, how can God forgive me? God is not Goldberg. For a sin I committed against God, God can forgive me. For a sin I committed against Goldberg, Goldberg has to forgive me. Only those who were wronged can write. Only he who has suffered, only he against whom a crime has been committed, he is entitled to forgive if he so desires. If you stole $50,000 from another human being, how can I forgive you? You didn't take the money from me. How could I forgive you? I cannot forgive you for that which you have done to somebody else. One of the people who responded to Wiesenthal, I think it was Professor Abraham Joshua Heschel, told him a story. He said that um, 
there was the rabbi, I think he, they say it about the Apterov. I think they say it about the Apterov, Rabbi Avram Yeshua of Apta. Um, no, not about the Apterov. They say it about a great Rav, one of the great rabbis. I think he wrote it was the rabbi of, of Brisk in Lithuania. I've heard other names. But it was a great rabbi who was unassumingly traveling home on the train. And uh, I don't think the Apterov was on a train, that's why I don't think it's him. He shared company with a group of Jews who were very callous, they were very lightheaded, they were playing cards, and they were bothered by his aloof attitude, so one of them demanded that he join the game of cards or he leaves the car. The rabbi didn't comply, so the fellow physically lifted up this Jew and he removes him from the train car. That's what happens. When the train arrives at Brisk, it's also the stop of the offender who threw him out. He's shocked. He sees so many Jews standing there waiting to greet their rabbi. Mortified, he sees that the person he threw out of the train is this great rabbi. He runs over and asks forgiveness. The rabbi says, I'm not going to forgive you. He tries again and again and again, but the rabbi does not forgive him. The son, surprised at his father's uncharacteristic behavior, goes to his father and he says, I don't understand. Why did you deny forgiveness from this Jew? And his father says, I can't forgive him. He didn't offend me, the rabbi of Brisk. He didn't know who I was. He offended the simple Jew he took me to be. He offended the Jew who doesn't look like him, who doesn't want to be part of his game. He couldn't tolerate. That's who he offended. If he would have known who I was, he would have never behaved this way. He assumed I was a simple Jew and he can violate my dignity. I can't forgive him because it wasn't me who he shamed. Let him ask forgiveness from the simple Jew he tried to shame. And the point he was making was, I cannot forgive you. As kind, as generous, as selfless, as saintly as I am, I can't forgive you for crimes you did to somebody else. So you ask me, how should you forgive somebody who hurt somebody else? They have to go to that person. That's the rule. Okay, let's go to the next questions. You can call in 845-354-2444, 845-354-2444, or you can email rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. Could you refresh this again? We'll go now to the next question. And the next question is, somebody has hurt me. Somebody has embarrassed me, denigrated me, and did something very wrong to me. She has apologized to me. She asked me to forgive her. I'm having a very hard time forgiving this person. Listen, listen, my friend, I understand you. I understand you. It's not easy. If somebody hurt you and you were really hurt, it can be extremely difficult to forgive. There's no question. And forgiveness must be sincere. Forgiveness is not about a verbal, insincere declaration. Forgiveness is about a very sincere, internal commitment that I really forgive you. But let me tell you something. When you forgive another person, it's not only the other person you're benefiting. That's certainly. But you're also benefiting yourself. And I'm going to quote... A man who can inspire us concerning forgiveness. It's a man who died recently. You probably know who I'm referring to. Nelson Mandela. South Africans Nelson Mandela 
who died uh, in 2013 in December at the age of 95. He's been imprisoned for 27 years. At the age of 46 in 1964, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for supposedly leading a campaign of sabotage against the South African apartheid government. He was confined to the harsh Robben Island prison near Cape Town for most of his time behind bars. He was denied permission to go to the funeral of his mother. He was denied permission to go to the funeral of his own son killed in a car crash. In February 1990, he was freed after 27 years, a few months after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mandela wrote an autobiography. It's called The Long Walk to Freedom. And he wrote there that as I finally walked through those gates, I felt even at the age of 71 that my life was beginning anew. Four years later, following South Africa's first fully democratic election, he became president of his country. And something extraordinary transpired before the eyes of the world. One would have naturally expected Nelson Mandela to be filled with resentment, bitterness, animosity. The astounding truth remains that Nelson Mandela was not perfect. He made a lot of mistakes, but he did not carry around hate, bitterness, and anger. He had his flaws, but he was a master of forgiveness. South Africa's first black president spent nearly one-third of his life as a prisoner of apartheid. But it did not make him bitter he learned to forgive others. He said that he believed that forgiveness was the only way to heal South Africa and lead to a brighter tomorrow. You cannot take the mantle of leadership with hate if you hope to succeed. You must not allow hate to fester in your brain, he said. You can never allow racism, hatred, and bitterness to rent space in your head. And then he writes, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. That's what resentment is. When we live with resentment and that lack of forgiveness, it poisons not only other people, it poisons ourselves. So what I want to encourage you is, find the strength within yourself to forgive. You know how? By realizing how powerful you are, how godly you are, how good you are, and that ultimately what happens to us in our life is by divine providence. And this is where the inspiration of Yosef comes in, Joseph. I mean, he was so badly hurt by his brothers. They threw him into a pit. They sell him into slavery. For 22 years, he separated from his beloved father. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt, but not without years of torment and agony. He was accused of horrible crimes. He was thrown into prison. And then when he finally reveals his identity to his brothers, they are shocked. They're mortified. They're frightened. And Yosef Joseph says, don't be depressed. You did not sell me. God sent me here. What Joseph was teaching humanity for eternity is, that when you realize who you are, and when you realize that ultimately you have an inner divine core and power that nobody can crush, 
and that God is holding your hand wherever you go and that all the circumstances that happened to you in your life were not about somebody selling you, but about God sending you, you can find the strength and courage to forgive. Not because the other person didn't do something wrong and not because you did not endure so much pain, but because you realize that you are in a position of strength and wholesomeness that you could forgive. Because your inner spiritual wholesomeness, nobody can destroy. So I know it's difficult, but I would encourage you, try to forgive. Especially this person asked you forgiveness. Try to forgive. Tonight's topic is how to forgive if you can't forget. The lines are open. Feel free to call in to our radio show or email your experiences, your questions. Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com or 845-354-2444. You can call in live right now, 845-354-2444, Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com. And you could listen to this show afterwards as well. You can also listen to other classes by yours truly at www.theyeshiva.net, including tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, we have the 9.30 a.m. class. Tomorrow's topic is Pesach Sheni and Rabbi Meir, and uh, that's Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. at theyeshiva.net. Let's go to the emails and take some more questions from our dear listeners the world over. I see we have a few emails from the Holy Land. Wow, you guys are up late or I guess early. Um, So here is another email, and is it an obligation to forgive anybody who hurt you? No, there's no obligation to forgive somebody who hurt you, although it is deeply encouraged. I assume you're talking about, I don't know if you mean somebody asked you for forgiveness or not, maybe you want to clarify, but I'll clarify it here in my response to you. If somebody has asked you for forgiveness, if somebody calls you, somebody emails you, somebody somebody says, I apologize. I did this and this to you. I hurt you. I embarrassed you. I deceived you. Whatever it is, I denigrated you, and I really apologize. Then Judaism strongly, strongly asks of us, to find within ourselves the strength to forgive that person. The expression in Jewish law is, don't be cruel and not forgive. That's if somebody asks you to forgive. What if, that's if somebody asks you for forgiveness. What if somebody doesn't ask you? So, are you obligated? Morally obligated, you're not. Is it encouraged? Yes. In fact, there is a beautiful meditation that many Jews say at night before they go to bed. And it goes like this. the master of the universe, Master of the universe, I forgive all those who have angered me, who have upset me, who have annoyed me, who have frustrated me, who have provoked me, who have sinned against me on any level today. This is what's called Midas Chasidus. It's not a moral obligation. It's the pious thing to do. 
And the reason is the pious thing to do is because it cleanses us. It cleanses the other person and it cleanses us. It cleanses you. But it's about meaning it. It's about sincerity. Forgiveness is not just a verbal declaration, as I said before. It's an internal emotion. It's an internal experience. So I have to be able to work on myself to really be able to forgive. And ultimately... It's about your healing. Because when I walk around with resentment, as I said earlier, you know what it's like? It's basically allowing your enemy to live in your brain 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, rent-free. At least if he's your enemy, charge him! He occupies all the space in your brain and you don't stop thinking about him. Now, it's very important. Sometimes you have to confront the person. Sometimes you have to call the person. You have to say, I'm very upset. You hurt me. The Rambam explains in Hilchas Deis Perik Vav, the sixth chapter of Hilchas Deis, based on a Pasuk in Parshas Ketoshim. Don't hate your brother in your heart. The worst is the hatred that you carry around in your heart, the resentment, it's like the poison you carry around, walking around, thinking negatively about other people. You have to talk about it. Speak to the person. Confront the person. If you can really cleanse yourself from your system without, great. But sometimes you have to deal and confront with the person. Confront the person. So even if they don't apologize, if you could forgive, it's a great it's a great moment, it's a great opportunity, it's a great experience. But remember, that's only if it's something done to you. You can't forgive for what somebody did to somebody else. Nor can you forgive if by forgiveness you're encouraging them to continue. Let's go to the next question. Lee, if you could get up the other emails here. And uh, we're going to take now more questions from our dear audience. You can call in 845-354-2444 or... I see our people like to email RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. You mentioned Nelson Mandela. I'm surprised you do not mention or think about Jonathan Pollard who spent 30 years in prison without being freed. He's an amazing individual who holds no anger or bitterness and who is very ethical and moral. Fred. Thank you, Fred. Thank you so much for your comment. And this is a moment to think and focus and pray for Jonathan Pollard, who has been for three decades in prison and who is indeed a special man and a special, special Jew. David asks an email in his email from Israel. Or not from Israel. David says... I'm having a problem loving other Jews. I know there are so many different sects of our religion. You have Hasidim, you have non-Hasidim, you have modern, you have secular, you have Satmer, Babiv, Haredi, Ultra-Haredi, Chabad, Vizhnitz. Each circle has their own idiosyncrasies. Many of them don't get along with each other. The thing that gets me is there are people who even throw stones at others who drive on Shabbos. There are people who are disrespectful towards women. How can I love them as other Jews? Why does each sect have to be so different? Please explain. I thought we were one nation. Thank you, David, for your question. And here is another email. Dear Rabbi, this is from Binyamin. I live in Israel. Israel. 
I am part of the Haredi ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community. There is something that is really bothering me. And that is the antagonism and the animosity against Israeli soldiers, including religious youngsters who go into the Tzahal, to the IDF. There are people who call them Nazis. There are people who throw big rocks at them. In fact, I have a son who will soon be joining the army. And I can't wait. I am so proud of him. I see so many wonderful boys who join the army. The Nachal Haredi is really a great, great uh, platoon in the Israeli army. What is your opinion of this? Well, thank you, Binyamin, and thank you, David, uh, for these important questions. It's very, very painful for me, and I think it's very, it should be very painful for any Jew. To call an Israeli soldier a Nazi is is not only cruel, it's so stupid, it's so ridiculous, it's so absurd. And I want to hope that it's coming from youthful stupidity and ignorance. How can anybody with even a basic knowledge of Jewish history express themselves verbally this way? It's even hard for me that somebody believes it. And if somebody believes it, either they're really, really stupid or they're really, really cruel. It's disgusting. It's repulsive. It's abominable. I mean, whatever your opinion about Israel is, here are young Jews who put their life on the line so that you can live. Go to military cemeteries. 23,000 of them have been killed, sacrificing their life to protect the millions of Jews who are living in the Holy Land. Where is, you always, we always speak about hakaras, hatayv, gratitude. Where is basic gratitude? Just say thank you. You see a soldier in the street, go over and say, I just want to say thank you. Let's say you are of the opinion and the conviction that no yeshiva boy should serve in the army, and I'm not getting into that debate. Where is the thank you, the gratefulness? How many mothers have buried their children who served on the front lines of Israel to protect millions of Jews? To use that word is unforgivable in my dictionary. They need to apologize to every single soldier. It's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. The division between Jewish sects is a very serious malady that we suffer from. We have an issue with this. There's no problem that people are different. It's fine. People have different cultures and different ways to dress and different values. That's fine. It's wonderful. We're made up of a large mosaic, and it's the colorfulness of the Jewish people that is really enriching and beautiful. But we may suffer from this insecurity that if you don't look like me, you don't speak like me, you don't feel like me, you don't behave like me, then you are less than me. And I think it comes from immaturity and insecurity. I think a large Jew appreciates the fact that there is diversity and we doesn't mean we're not allowed to disagree, we can disagree. We don't have to be the same. There aren't ideological disagreements, so what? But why the hate? Why the animosity? Why the lack of decency and sensitivity and humanness? I don't understand it, and I think each of us has to be a partner in fighting this immaturity, fighting this negative energy. We have suffered terribly from it. And you know what? We should learn a little bit from our enemies, 
for our enemies, for our wani on Ahmadinejad on Asrala, there's really no difference between somebody who wears a strimal on Shabbos, somebody who wears a black hat on Shabbos, somebody who doesn't wear a hat on Shabbos, right-wing, left-wing, centrist, modern Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, Haredi, conservative, reform, left-wing, whatever it is, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. There may be differences, but at the core, we're one. So I completely agree with you. We have to oppose all of these types of divisions. And... uh, the throwing of the rocks is an old painful story. I challenge these people, if you really care about Shabbos, why don't you invite these Jews to your home for a Friday night meal? It's easy to throw rocks. Why don't you bring them close to Shabbos? Oh, that takes much more effort. You have to engage them. You have to invite them. You have to get into conversations with them. There are thousands of Jews in our generation who began celebrating Shabbos because somebody reached out to them, somebody invited them to a Shabbos meal, somebody invited them to a Hanukkah party, somebody brought them challah for Shabbos. Somebody engaged them in a positive and loving way. That's what we should be doing if we really care about Shabbos. Let's go back and we'll take some more questions from our audience. We're dealing here with love and forgiveness and so on and so forth. Rabbi Jacobson is the next question. I believe somebody opened up, this is an interesting question, somebody opened up an organization very close to very close proximity to me. It's hurting me very much, and uh, I have a very big problem forgiving them. Okay, listen, I don't know the details of the story. There is a concept called Hasagas Gvul, which means certain situations I cannot do something that will uh, infringe on your rights, on your on your boundary. It's called Loisasik Gvul Reyacha, which means to do something to hurt you and take away from you may be, uh, may be a prohibition. And if this person did something wrong, they should be confronted. But I don't know the details. I have to know more details and you should consult a competent uh, a, a rabbi in your area, somebody you trust, somebody who knows your story and your situation. I will share with you and with us a beautiful story that I once heard. There was a Jew who came. They say the Jew came to the Holy Reb Mayor of Primishlan, and he he had a store. He had a store, and there was somebody else who opened the store. It wasn't right near him. It was a little far away, and he said that this person opened this store in order to take away my entire livelihood, and it's unforgivable. And the mayor of Primishlan told him this. He said, you know, did you ever notice that when a horse comes to the river to drink and the horse bends down its head to the water, the horse often starts kicking, kicking the sand beneath the water. Why? The man said, Beats me and the mayor of Primishlan said, I'll tell you why. Because when the horse bends down its head to drink from the water, what does the horse see in the water? It sees a horse. And the horse imagines here is another horse who's coming into my territory to drink my water. So the horse starts kicking, wanting to get rid of that other chutzpah horse who is so envious of my water. And Mary Primishlana said, but what's the truth? The truth is this is the horse's perspective. The truth is it's an illusion. There's no other horse who came to drink your water. Nobody is here to take your water. What the horse is seeing is a reflection of itself. 
Number two, problem number two is, as a result of this animosity, the horse, what is the horse doing? He's kicking the sand and he's making his own water murky and dirty. He's making his own water that he has to drink filthy. And point number three, this third mistake is, is enough water for everybody in the river? And I would add point number four. You're kicking the other horse, and who you're kicking, you're really kicking yourself. It's your reflection. You and the other person are ultimately not detached. We're all one. All of our souls are one. We're all connected. So I think in life it's important to know that sometimes we come to the water and we see a horse in the water and we get so upset and we spend the rest of our life kicking, 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 getting rid of the other horse. First of all, there's no other horse here. Second of all, there's enough water for everybody. Third of all, as a result of kicking, you're just making your own water dirty. And fourth, if I may add, in a way you're kicking yourself. So it's important to realize all of these things. You can call in 845-354-2444 or email rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. Aaron asks a question. Can you forgive those Jews who called our soldiers Nazis? Can you still be okay with them even if they are not okay? I think we first need to be Makar of those people who call them Nazis. Okay, Aaron, listen. (laughs) I assume that those kids or those youngsters who are calling them such names have been indoctrinated, have been brainwashed. So in many ways, I feel compassion for them. But I cannot tolerate their actions. I cannot tolerate their actions. I think they need to be sobered up. They need a cleansing of their brains. They have been so indoctrinated. I once, I once gave a speech about, about Israel, and there was, I'm embarrassed to say, there was a yeshiva student who came over to me. It was last year Pesach, I'll never forget. I spoke about those youngsters who sacrificed their lives. I told a story. I love the story. Reb Shloim Zalman Oyerbach, he was one of the great halachic authorities of the last generation, Rosh Hashiva of Kol Torah. And somebody visited Reb Shloim Zalman Oyerbach, who was a lover of the Jewish people, and he was very normal. He was a normal person. When he passed away, the Tolner Rebbe, Reb Itcher Weinberg, Zolzain Gesund, said, you know, people write on him, Zatzal Zechid Sadik Levrocha. And he said, I would write, Zayin Nun Lamed, Zechid Normaler Levrocha, one of the last leading authorities of a generation who was so normal, so balanced, normal, very normal. So a Jew tells Rabbi Shlomo Zalman, he's going to the north. Zalman says, why are you going to the north? North of Israel. So I'm going to Kivrei Tzadikim. I'm going to the burial places of righteous people. The north of Israel is filled with holy places. You have this week, like Boim and Miran, of course, you have Tzvas, you have Tveria, etc. And Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Oyebach reportedly told him, you don't have to go to the north. You can go right here outside of Yerushalayim. You can go to Har Herzl. You can go to the cemetery of Har Herzl. And you'll have thousands of graves of soldiers who are tzaddikim gemurim. They are complete tzaddikim. So what Shem Zalman Oyebach told them. I don't know if you know, but the halacha is that usually we don't bury a corpse in its clothes. Somebody dies, you take off the clothes, the 
mikvah, you put them in the mikvah, you cleanse them, you put on the shrouds, the tachrichim. There's one exception. You know that all soldiers who fall in battle in Israel, based on the halacha in Shulchan Aruch, they get buried in their clothes without mikvah. All Jews who are killed, Al-Kiddush Hashem, the Allah is, you don't put them in the mikvah, you bury them in the bloody clothes with which they fell in battle. They go to heaven to face their Creator with their clothes, with their uniforms, because it's these clothes that demonstrate the sacrifices they have made. So therefore, my friends, this is not about judging people who call people nasty names, but it's about knowing what is wrong and what is right. These kids or these kanoyim or these brainwashed zealots who call soldiers by these nasty names, I assume they were indoctrinated. I'm not here to judge them. And I'm not here to tell you not to engage them and not to try to help them become compassionate, normal human beings who can see the difference between light and darkness. But what I am saying is Such behavior should not be accepted, understood, and justified. Just like the behavior of those nutjobs who, from the Neturi Karta, who went to hug and kiss Ahmadinejad or embrace Yasser Arafat, should never, ever be condoned or accepted. There is room for diversity, there's many disagreements, but this is not just pathetic, it's absurd, it's horrible. It's horrible. Okay, let's see if there are more questions. Lee, could you show me the other emails that are coming in? We have only a few minutes left, so we could take maybe one call or one more email. 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444. I'm going to tell you a story, and I'll tell you the truth. Some people say that the end of the story is historically unfounded, and it's a legend. It could be. But the story has made waves uh, over years, and I'm going to tell it to you very briefly. It's a fascinating story. It takes us back to the morning of June 24th, 1922. There was a man named Walter Ruthenhow. Ruthenhow. Walter Ruthenhow. He was the first ever Jewish, beloved German foreign minister. Of course, a few years later, the Nazis would take over, but the first and last... German foreign minister, a Jew, was Walter Ruttenhau. And it's June 24th, 1924. He sets off for work from his villa in a Berlin suburb. The weather is fine. He instructs his chauffeur to use the open-top limousine. The minister is sitting alone in the back as the car slows down to negotiate a bend just before joining the main road. Another car comes out of the side street. Two men were sitting in the back. A rapid series of shots rang out. At the same moment, there was a loud explosion as one of the men threw a hand grenade into the back of the limousine. A passing nurse cradles the dying Jewish foreign minister as the chauffeur drove to the nearest police station. But she could do nothing. The 54-year-old Jew, Walter Rottenhau, was dead. He was killed by a group of right German extremists, bitter anti-Semites. Two people killed him, Erwin Kern and Hermann Fischer. They escaped. The police mounted the largest manhunt Germany has ever seen. 
and ultimately these two guys were caught. Curran was killed in a shootout. Fisher committed suicide. But there was the driver of the car whose name was Ernest Tekow. He was 21. And he escaped. He is the one who drove away in the car. And what happens is his parents turn him in and he faces trial. Something extraordinary occurs. Rottenhau's mother, the, the man who died, his mother, writes a letter. She says, in grief unspeakable, I give you my hand, say to your son that in the name and spirit of him who he has murdered, I forgive, even as God may forgive, if before an earthly judge your son makes a full and frank confession of his guilt, and before a heavenly judge repents. Had he known my son, the noblest man earth bore, he would have rather turned the weapon on himself. May these words give peace to your soul. And I want to tell you something. And that is, Tekau gave testimony that he wanted to back out of the incident, but he was threatened himself. They convicted him for 14 years in prison. He ultimately served five. In prison, he studied the writings of the man he helped murder, and he came to admire him deeply. He went on to learn Hebrew, become a scholar of Judaism. But the story is that after serving his prison sentence, he joins the French Foreign Legion. And ultimately, France capitulates to Germany in 1940, and it starts participating in the slaughter of Jews. And the story goes that, as a member in the France Foreign Legion, he helps 700 Jews escape from France to Spain. 700 Jews are saved from Hitler. Rottenhau's mother in incredible pain, had the ability to offer words of forgiveness and it saved 700 Jewish lives. Wow. I cannot understand her courage, but we can all look up to such a human being. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.